Jurassic Parkcast, a Jurassic Park podcast where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park, and also not that too. My name's Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 16, Malcolm, recorded on a bright and sunny and warm and wonderful day on May 30th, 2022. Thanks for joining me today. I want to say a continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail for letting me use all the terrific songs that serve as bumpers to begin and close out these episodes. You can find his album on Spotify, Bandcamp. Just look up Snail, S-N-A-L-E. And today's intro is from the song Super Groovy, and our outro is T-Shirts. I never get tired of listening to them. So guys, for all these 16 episodes, we've been building and building towards visiting Jurassic Park, getting to the island and getting attacked by dinosaurs and exploring the mystery of cloning extinct DNA. This episode is exciting because we finally get Ian Malcolm in the book. Women want to be with him and men wish they could be him. The man, the legend, he's finally here and he's going to be glorious. And that starts today. I need to address some corrections I was mistaken. I keep crediting Ed Regis with the line, Welcome to Jurassic Park, which is famously said by Hammond in the film. But in reality, nobody actually says it. Quote, The group followed Ed Regis toward the nearest buildings. Over the path, a crude hand-painted sign read, Welcome to Jurassic Park. That's on page 80. It was just a sign. My mistake. I said that Dr. Alan Grant was working at the University of Utah, but of course I was wrong. It is instead the University of Denver in Colorado. Uh, in episode 14, Target of Opportunity, I said I couldn't figure out what quantitative means, and I still can't. But in researching black body radiation for this episode, I came across quantization, which may be a word in the same family as quantitative. I don't know. It means to subdivide something, usually energy, into small but measurable increments. Is this a correction? I guess not. Perhaps it's just me being upfront about, I guess, being wrong about whatever the heck this stuff is because I can't figure it out yet. Moving on, we have some fun dinosaur news. Uh, This first article is from 1917, (laughs) over 100 years ago, 105 years ago. How do you like that? My first piece of dinosaur news is probably better described as the opposite of of news. Uh, It's like old, because it's from 1917, which is when Henry Fairfield Osborne published Skeletal Adaptations Ornitholestes Struthiomimus and Tyrannosaurus. Primarily, this old paper describes and compares Ornitholestes, which was a six-foot salurosaur, which had like a raptor-like body but without the distinctive raptorial claws, Struthiomimus, which was a larger animal that is like an ostrich mimic, and Tyrannosaurus, who we all know and love. Osborne describes Tyrannosaurus in possibly the most pleasurable way possible. Quote, Tyrannosaurus is the most superb carnivorous mechanism among the terrestrial vertebrata, in which raptorial destructive power and speed are combined. It represents the climax in the evolution of a series which began with a relatively small and slender Triassic carnivore Anchisaurus. The fortunate discovery of two skeletons of exactly the same size, the American Museum's uh, specimen number 973 and specimen 5027, secured by the American Museum of Natural History, expeditions to Hell Creek, Montana, in the years 1902 and 1908, respectively, affords complete knowledge of all parts of the skeleton except the sternal ribs, the forearm, and the manis. The mounted animal is chiefly composed of the specimen found in 1908, 
which is a specimen 5027, with the missing complementary parts, especially the humerus and the femur, cast from a genotype specimen, which is uh, number 973, which was discovered in 1902. The publication compares the Tyrannosaurus to other smaller theropods, and specifically Struthiomimus and Ornitholestes, for the purposes of discussing evolution. Ornitholestes was from the late Jurassics, Struthiomimus from the early Cretaceous, and Tyrannosaurus is from the very end of the late Cretaceous. And I think Osborne was suggesting that these different animals represented how animals changed over time through evolution, and that somehow comparing these particular animals gave some insight into evolutionary results. Quote, the resemblances which the skeleton of Tyrannosaurus presents to that of Struthiomimus and Ornitholestes are due to inheritance from from a remote common ancestor of lower Jurassic or even Triassic age. The many striking differences are due to the extremely wide divergence in the habits and adaptations of these animals. Beyond a few common features, they aren't especially worthy of meaningful scientific comparison. And he says so. The obvious ancestral resemblances cease or are masked by the widely divergent adaptations of Tyrannosaurus to exclusive carnivorous habits and aggression and of Struthiomimus and Ornitholestes probably to herbivorous habits and defenselessness comp compensated for, doubtless, by alert powers of vision and rapid locomotion. And Osborne doesn't know it yet, but Tyrannosaurus would re be revealed to have excellent vision and the ability to outpace its victims as well, so uh, Tyrannosaurus wins all the time. Of particular interest, there is a mention of, quote, problematic dermal plates, which were first described by Osborne in 1906, which are unique to the specimens in the American Museum of Natural History and are unlike those of the, quote, armored herbivorous dinosaurs or the armored ceratopsia. In a type specimen of Ceratosaurus, recently mounted in the U.S. National Museum, and by recently he probably means in 1917, uh, there is a part of a row of dermal plates present above the tips of the neural spines. It is therefore quite possible that plates of the character attributed by Osborne to Dynamosaurus, which is a type of Tyrannosaur, extended down over the size of the body, says the paper. Apparently, in the Dynamosaurus specimens, there were, quote, superficial bony dermal plates that extended either along the dorsal or side lines of the body. I can't find any further description of what these dermal plates are. They aren't even in the diagrams in this paper, so, like, I don't know whatever happened to that, but perhaps those have been lost to history. But it'd be interesting to know more about those problematic dermal plates. Uh, the second story we have from the Proceedings of the Geologists Association, Volume 132, Issue 4, published about a year ago in August 2021. The article, The Youngest Dinosaur Footprints from England and Their Paleoenvironmental Implications, reports on the, quote, youngest association of dinosaur footprints from England. Uh, they were discovered in the Folkestone Formation, known to be from the early Cretaceous, and more specifically the Albion Age, which is, this, which is the southeast area of England in the land of Kent. To say something is, quote, specifically from the Albion Age is a little misleading because that refers to a span of time equivalent to 12 million years, which is incredibly vast, or in other words, unspecific. Uh, the footprints are apparently of theropods and ornithopods, and the authors believe that some are specifically of a type of ankylosaur. They found other stuff like fossil wood and oysters in the matrix, informing their hypothesis that this was a, quote, coastal depositional environment of an extremely shallow depth, perhaps with short periods of subaerial exposure. This is the first record of dinosaur footprints from the Folkestone Formation, and it represents the youngest association of dinosaur footprints from England. In this case, youngest means the footprints were made most recently, but also, bear in mind, 100 million years ago. As far as I can find, no dinosaur fossils have been found in the Folkestone Formation, but these Ichno fossils, the footprints, are pretty cool. If it were a beach, or more likely an oyster house or something like that, then you'd probably find more fish and things like that than you would dinosaurs anyhow. The Dinosaur News today features England and Tyrannosaurus because my exceptional guest also has his roots in England and with Tyrannosaurus too.
Okay, today's guest is a senior lecturer in zoology at Queen Mary University of London in the School of Biological and Chemical Sciences and a paleontologist and writer whose research focuses on the behavior and ecology of the dinosaurs and their flying relatives, the pterosaurs. He's written extensively online about paleontology and science outreach blogs for the science pages of The Guardian and regularly contributes to other media outlets as well as being a scientific consultant. He's literally written the book on Tyrannosaurus called The Tyrannosaur Chronicles, out now with Bloomsbury. He publishes the blog Archosaur Musings, co-hosts the incredibly well-produced and executed Terrible Lizards podcast, and has been lead author or co-author on papers naming new species of spinosaurs, bird-like dinosaurs, dromaeosaurs, alvarosaurs, carcharodontosaurs, oviraptorosaurs, hadrosaurs, and a tyrannosaur. The next voice you will hear is that of Dr. David Hone. Hello. <laughs> It's a wonderful introduction. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> you earned it, though. It's not just I, my... I will accept that, <laughs> that fulsome praise in the intention. <laughs> well, thank you for joining me today. So, Dr. David Hohen and I met in California at Disneyland, where we were serendipitously both stumbling off of the Mad Tea Party spinning teacup ride while the unbirthday song from Disney's Alice in Wonderland blasted over the park speakers. And dizzy from the spinning, we bopped into one another and fell to the ground. And standing over us with a glare of contempt was Dr. Alan Grant himself, whose glowering bearded muzzle was enough to say that he hated the Disney teacup ride just as much as he hated the teacup dinosaur hunters. And just like that, he was gone. But Dave, you and I will always share that moment where we disappointed one of the most famous fictional paleontologists the world has ever known. I'm sure I've disappointed plenty of others as well over the years. <laughs> but he was the most and, famous. And real ones. <laughs> Very good. So it begs the question that that's an important part of Alan Grant's backstory that was not included in uh, by Crichton when he was putting the story together. Why do you suppose he would admit that? That seemed important. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, sure, surely the seminal moment of his career was meeting me ten years after the book, had, no, twenty years after the book had been published. <laughs> For some reason, didn't make it into the original script. <laughs> So there's, there's this expression that comes up when we meet Alan Grant, uh, when we're introduced to him, and he goes on and he says, we get this term, the teacup dinosaur hunters. And uh, I don't know if that is a real term or something that uh, Creighton you know, divined out of um, some research that he had performed, but does, is that a term that means anything uh, in paleontological circles? Ab absolutely nothing to me if it does. <laughs> okay. Though, yeah, it, you know my experience of reading Jurassic Park now, and I, I actually reread it probably less than a year ago um, because of a, an, an essay I was writing about it, which hasn't come out yet. It's one of those classic in okay. hiatus pieces, <laughs> which hopefully we'll see the light of way one day. Um, but yeah, the, the, you know, the more experienced and knowledgeable I become and the more I look back at it, the more and more you realize the stuff that he fudged, made up, yeah um just played around with and yeah i mean like that, that could also just you know just remember the date you know we are talking about the late 80s mm -hmm. i didn't start my phd into 2002 so you know the 15 20 years apart so it's possible that was a phrase that's just fallen out of fashion it's possible a phrase that one guy used or one lab used that he picked up on mm -hmm. it's perfectly possible he just made it up yeah. because he made up quite a lot of stuff as well and yes i know he's a fiction writer but even in the inverted commas real world of his fiction there's a lot of stuff that he made up mm -hmm. so you're you're in london presently right now yep that's excellent so yep. that's, is that's is where i live is tea time a stereotype or is that still part of like one's day in jolly no, old england no everyone drinks coffee now yeah okay there's a, 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 you know there's 
many people will have a mid-afternoon break. But yeah. the, 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 idea, the classic idea of tea at three o'clock isn't really a thing anymore, unless you're in a very expensive hotel, in which case high <laughs> tea is absolutely a thing. You know, if you're staying at the Ritz or the, yes. or the Hilton or something like that. But yeah, that, that, that hasn't been a thing for, I think, 20 or 30 years. Well, this is an important question too. So how, does, how, do, how do you folks celebrate Victoria Day? Canada has Victoria Day. We celebrate, we love it very much. It's a, the first we, we nice- We don't have Victoria Day. You so don't have nice. Victoria Day. <laughs> Yeah, that's a fairly easy one. <laughs> well, I'm surprised. So we honor Victoria by having the first sunny weekend, really, uh, is a long weekend. And they call it May 2-4, uh, which is how you describe uh, the quantity of beers that come in a case. And then you go and get that and go camping. And it's a May 2-4 weekend uh, to the Queen. <laughs> yeah. uh, we, we, we have May Day. So, yeah, we have a bank holiday in the first Monday of May, but mm. it's not Victoria Day. That sounds very... Like British compared to Victoria Day. Yeah. <laughs> I don't much know why. More, much more boring and doesn't have a name and isn't attached to anything. Yeah. All right. So well, that's that's too bad. So so we're you've been all over the world, yeah. I I have, but I I've done very little digging. So I mean that that's that's a not necessarily a mischaracterization as such, but I I think people think because of stuff like Jurassic Park, mm-hmm. paleontologists spend all summer in the badlands, ideally of Montana or China or Argentina, digging holes in the ground and pulling out fossils. And the truth of the matter is very few paleontologists spend much time in the field. Mm -hmm. And I spend almost no time in the field. I wish I spent a lot more time in the field. I greatly enjoy it. And I flatter myself that I'm a pretty decent prospector. So I'm quite good at finding stuff. Yeah. Which is very different from an excavator who's good at getting stuff out of the ground, which I'm very much not. but yeah, it's, you know, that's the way these, these fields go. And if you're British, you know, we don't have a lot in the UK or even in Europe, which means you're immediately automatically tied, whether it's North America, China, India, Australia, wherever it is that you're working, you've got to travel a very long distance, immediately racks up time, it racks up money, there's local permits and expenses and all the rest of that. And it just becomes very, very difficult. And there are not too many people in the UK, I don't think, who are mm-hmm. paleontologists who spend much time in the field. Okay. But then I've also got colleagues who are colleagues at the, the Tyrrell Museum in Alberta. And, you know, they're, they're literally bordering on Dinosaur Provincial yes. Park with permanent field stations there and can just drive out there in an hour anytime they want to go in a dig and spend a lot of time in summer prospecting and excavating Mm -hmm. so there are absolutely people who do do that but you know that that line in the jurassic park film oh you never get grant out of montana he's a digger Mm -hmm. no one digs for 12 months (laughs) a year in montana for a start the snow and the wind and the rain makes it impossible for months of the year um you absolutely could find time in january to get grant down to costa rica because he'll be sitting in a lab or in an office doing nothing um Yeah, those people, they exist. They're extraordinarily rare. And the idea that your average paleontologist spends most of their time digging a hole in the ground is Mm -hmm. an absolute fantasy. Um, But yeah, I've I've done a bit of work in Mexico, US, Canada, uh, China. I'm hopefully going to Mongolia this year for the first time, despite having spent years in in China. Dug a little bit in the UK, actually, uh, and in Germany. Um, So yeah, I've got around. That's good. So would a lot of the, the research and analysis be performed on on specimens that are in, in collection already at museum? Yeah, that, that's kind of my specialty. Okay. So 
My, my job is um, very teaching focused. That's the role that I have. I do a lot of teaching. So time is at an absolute premium for research anyway. Money is at an absolute premium. So again, digs and organizing that is very, very difficult. Finding a spare week or a, even a long weekend, if it's just in Europe, to hop across to a museum and open all the drawers in, in, a, in a room and see if there's something that catches my eye that fits the kind of stuff I'm interested in that may have been bypassed by other people. So I've done a lot of work on bike marks. Plenty of people have catalogued stuff without ever really looking at it. And so there's an awful lot of bones out there with bites from various animals on them, which when you dig into it, actually you can tell a bit of a story and pull some behavior out. And yeah, that, that's, I've made a bunch of papers from open the drawer, open the drawer, open the drawer. Oh, that little fragment's interesting. That's got something on it. That probably ties to this thing that I saw somewhere else and start putting stuff together. So yeah, I'm, I'm a bit of a kind of prospector within cabinets. And there's a few of us who do that. And while it might lack some of the glamour of finding new species in the field and finding new specimens in the field, nonetheless it's it's important stuff and if there's data out there that can be used well let's use it mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so when you find a bite mark in a bone does that count as a trace fossil as well as a fossil or is that yeah so you've got a trace fossil on a body fossil That's so cool. yeah so tra trace fossils are the actions of animals and body fossils are their actual remains but you've always so eggs are traditionally considered trace fossils, even though they're kind of biological in origin. Okay. And then once you've got an embryo in an egg, you've now got a body fossil in a trace fossil, which might be in a nest. So it's a body fossil in a trace fossil in a trace fossil, and it, you know it's one. It's like so many things in science, but I think particularly in biology where we have so much smearing. You know, in chemistry, carbon is carbon, and you might have a couple of isotopes, but it's carbon we you know we can't even define species and individuals for a lot of things when you get stuff like coral um so it's a lot more vague and but you're often using terms that are there because they are a convenience to convey information rather than because it's some kind of black and white mm. uh, and i think a lot of people fail to understand that and therefore misattribute stuff or misinterpret what people are trying to say I don't know any paleontologist who really is fussed about whether or not an egg is a trace fossil or a body fossil. <laughs> but the convention is that it's a trace fossil if there's no embryo in it. And as long as we all stick to that, we all know what we mean. Yeah. And that's what's important because you want to convey ideas that what words and technical technical terms are for. And that's why I can get frustrated at times when you go, oh, it's, it's all just like techno babble and jargon and you're making up words just to exclude other people no we're we're making up words because it's actually convenient my favorite one is talking about arctometatars aliens um so the arctometatarsal is the weird bone in the middle of a foot that you get in a whole bunch of different lineages um, and that has certain implications for how animals move how they evolved and their ecology and their their feeding systems and the environments they were in and it's a lot quicker to say arctometatarsal than it is say, you know, that weird pitch middle metatarsal that you get in certain groups, which has certain implications for them. Yeah, it's, like, it's, it's not jargon if it saves you writing half a page and everyone knows <laughs> what you mean. Um, it's not pointless in that regard. Uh, but yeah, but, but a, a traditional bite mark would yeah, be a trace fossil on a body fossil. That's pretty cool. So furthering with uh, with some questions on fieldwork that are related to to what's going on in the novel, we have the the computer assisted sonic tomography, in particular. Yeah, dump work. 
I was going to say, it sounds implausible for a couple of reasons. So it feels like he did this good research, wanted to put it in there, uh, yeah. even though it doesn't really jive, but just he wasn't going to throw the research out. He had to show his work, right? So he includes well, it anyhow. And he even mentions, it, quote, a whole new era of archaeology without excavation, which is, I mean, completely different field of study. So, yeah. you know, that Creighton mentions archaeology at this moment suggests that he may have gotten confused when he was writing this. But more importantly, so like when you're finding a fossil, it needs to be poking out of the ground a little so you can spot it. The idea that you would, by the idea that you would take a precious, fragile specimen and then take a thumper, place it on top of where it yeah. may be, and then discharge ordinance to then get a, a, yeah. a resonation on top of that fossil. It feels A, destructive, but B, like, I don't know, it doesn't make a lot of sense um, to me, well, but I'm not yeah, a paleontologist in the field. So uh, how does that feel well, I mean, in your end? People, people have tried this stuff, effectively ground penetrating radar and sonar, and we, we've used a whole bunch of other techniques as well. You're looking for radioactive signature because some fossils are radioactive. I believe there's been some very limited success, but some success nonetheless with oh, that. Cool. But what you what you really get with the you know sonar and that that kind of stuff is what they're usually working off of is density differential. They are finding where some, one thing is denser than another, and therefore it reflects, and therefore you you get the picture. Mm -hmm. And the problem with most fossils is they are fossil bone, but that process of fossilization is them extracting minerals and changing their mineral components based on the ground and the, the soil and ultimately rock that they're in. So they end up having the same chemical components as the stuff that they're in. Uh -huh. So they're the same density as the thing that they're in. Okay. So there's no density differentials. So there's nothing to see. Okay. Um, it, it's like painting a black picture on black paint. Well, you can't <laughs> see it. Or you can, but only under the absolute perfect conditions. Right. And if, you've, yeah, and if you've ever seen anyone on a dig... They're usually in the middle of nowhere, and fossils are not common, even even in places where fossils are common, as mm -hmm, it were. Mm -hmm. They are rare, and these things have a very limited depth range and a very limited lateral range. And so you can't just lug this $200,000 piece of equipment into the middle of nowhere and go, kadunk, <laughs> uh, we didn't find anything. Move forward six feet and try, try again. again. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be there forever and still find nothing. And it's a lot faster to walk around and go, there's a bit of bone sticking out of that hill. We should dig that up and see if there's something behind it. Mm -hmm. So we do that <laughs> because it's one thousandth of the effort of one fifty thousandth of the cost. Um, we still, as they did in the mid-1800s, walk around until we see something. Mm -hmm. And anything more technological than that really hasn't taken off there's, there's been some lucid success with drones again in dinosaur park oh yeah but you've got the same problem you're looking for, you know even when the bone is nice and bright so bits of china i've dug in some of the famous beds in mongolia the bone can be bright white against a orangey pinky yellow sand color but there's an awful lot of other white stuff out there <laughs> Bird crap is a very common stuff that we find from a distance looks like bone, actual bone of, of stuff, bleached dead wood, bleached fossil wood, um, uh, insect carcasses. And so, yeah, you can fly a drone around and find lots of little patches of white, but yeah. you've still got to walk up to them and see what they are. And so it's really not that much faster. Uh, and again, all the time and cost to make surprisingly little difference. So we, we don't... 
you know, I'm really sure that, you know, 20 years from now, uh-huh. AI pattern recognitions and tech just advances and leaps in unpredictable ways at unpredictable times. And of course, you also got to wait for the cost to come down. Just because we can do something now <laughs> in the lab at Stanford with a $20 million machine is a long difference from mm-hmm. I can afford to take it out to China with my naught budget. Um, but, you know, look at what drones have done in 10 years, for example. I'm mm-hmm. sure we're getting to the point where we can fly them around and the AI is going, I know what that shape is. That shape is this bone. You've probably got a specimen of that under here. But don't hold your breath. Everything, of the, you know, it's always 10 years away, 10 years away, 10 years away. I'm, I'm sure it will come whether that's in my lifetime or next year or 50 years from now, I wouldn't want to bet. <laughs> well, that's interesting. So there, there's one last little bit of that whole chapter there that that begs either it it demonstrates how absolutely clairvoyant grant is as a paleontologist or uh, once again it's uh, it's Crichton kind of mischaracterizing uh, the field work in reality but it's described that the the tip of the jaw of a four-month-old infant velociraptor is what he's spotted in the ground and there's this question of whether or not the remaining of the skeleton is in, in full articulation there and so yeah. it what he is describing is he has positively identified a four-month-old velociraptor, which has never been found before, they say in the book, yeah. by the tip of its snout. And so I've heard that there are stories of some paleontologists who can describe a species from like the, the simplest little piece that you find. But to, to diagnose an undiscovered infant and then positively scale it up to be what you expect it to be, maybe this explains why he found a velociraptor in 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 montana (laughs) because he misdiagnosed what he found (laughs) yeah i mean that's that's more of a taxonomic issue because of course in 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 his world of what we would call dynamicus is velociraptor um yeah i um ollie rauhut who's a colleague of mine well my my supervisor in my first postdoctoral position in in munich is one of those people like Mm -hmm. i've been around collections with ollie and and in the field and he'll pick up a chunk i'm like don't even know what this is. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there was one, and I remember it fairly clearly. And I'm like, to be fair to me, I am not a great anatomist now, and I was a considerably worse anatomist then. <laughs> but it, it was a it was a chunk, and I'm like, this is just a chunk of bone. Like, I don't even know what this is. And he kind of picks it up and turns it over, and went, oh, it's a left, it's a fragmentary left astragalus of an allosauroid. And I'm like, how on earth can you put that? And he went, well, because this and this and this and this and this pulls a book out and this and. This. Yeah, it's a left astragalus <laughs> and allosauroid. It, it just is. And because he's just got that memory for every little feature of basically everything he's ever seen and that 3D map in his head that wow. when it's incomplete and broken and slightly smushed, mm-hmm. that he can still go, well, it should be like that. And then that would be there. And then this would be here. And that's sloping at that angle. So it's probably going that way. And that's eroded, but that probably used to be a bulge. And I've only ever seen that in this animal. And that's part of that group, and therefore it's one of them. And, yeah, he's just right every time that I ever saw him. Wow. Yeah, tips of jaws of dromaeosaurs, they all look pretty much the same. (laughs) But it's one of those things where I I can do that to a degree for some things, because if you know your fauna, Mm -hmm. if you know that that's the only dromaeosaur you've ever found there, and you found the tip of a tiny one, well, it could be a new tiny species, but it's probably a juvenile of an adult, Mm. and it's the only one there, so it's probably that one. So you do only need a fragment to know 
it's a dromia sauce now. Mm -hmm. And if it's a dromia sauce now and it's got some filigree bone texture, which usually tells you it's a juvenile, then it's almost certainly the juvenile of the, the most species. common thing that you've got. Yeah, so cool. that's that's really quite plausible. I mean, I've, I've done that with my own students and like, they think you're an absolute god <laughs> if they don't know the secret, yeah. which is, you know, a couple, you know, there's a handful of bones out there for almost any species, which are just like, once you know, it's, it's that, it's that, it's that, it's that. And we find them in huge numbers. Mm -hmm. And you pick up this chunk and you go, oh, I found the da 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 And they're like, oh, what earth have you got that? It's like, oh, because there's thousands of them. <laughs> and it's the only, you know, and it's the only species out here. So, so it's that one. <laughs> and then, you know, the, 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 the secret of a good illusion is you don't tell them how you did it. Uh, but often the secret is that mundane. It's, it's very, very obvious in a mm -hmm. lot of places what things are. So I've had a bad habit so far when I'm doing this podcast where I've got a bunch of questions prepped and I ask all the things I want to do and then my guest tells me, well, we didn't get to talk about the book. <laughs> and so I, before we get into like other things or things like that, you know, let's do you. What what are some of the things that made you think to me? I don't know this guy from Adam, uh, but I'm going to be on his podcast today because I don't know why. What makes this book something that you would enter into <laughs> this proposition uh, with a smile? Uh it's, well, it's kind of nice to talk about it because yeah. I'm, I do a lot of outreach and engagement, so I, I talk to lots of people, more adults than kids, because I, I think I'm better at that, but I, I do lots of, lots of school stuff and, you know, right the way down to the very little ones, but usually kind of, you know, young teenagers and that kind of age, and they all want to talk about the films. Mm -hmm. And the films are interesting in their own right, he said carefully, but I'm, I'm just sick to death of them because you you can't be in this job and not be sick to death of them mm. no one talks about the book anymore and the book is still you know it has some horrible flaws in it it has some problem but it's a very interesting historical piece in terms of its writing and it absolutely brought forward the films which brought you know and remember it's a bestseller in its own right but it brought forward the films and brought forward knowledge and understanding and to a certain extent I don't think the, the love of dinosaurs ever went away, but it definitely rekindled it or, or brought it to a mm -hmm. to a higher level than it had been. And yeah, other than this, as I say, an unpublished essay that I wrote with a colleague, I don't think I've ever seriously spoken about it in any forum, despite having done dozens of podcasts in addition to my own. Mm -hmm. So yeah, let's talk about the bloody book. Not that we have, as you write, <laughs> half an hour in and said nothing about it yet. It, it, yeah, and it's like this podcast has been so fantastic because I love the book, and then you know, you read it, and you read it, and you read it, whatever. But then, like that, it, it offers this opportunity to to do more and to for me to, to call out to and, and speak with some like some people I've looked up to and things like that has been really remarkable, and it's been a, a really fun chance to to get to know some of the characters a little better, kind of find some of the problems and think them through. That stegosaur poisoning. Uh, was always like, yeah. how did that work out again? Because you don't remember. And then, like, you remember the aviary is in there, but it, it's, like, in the back of your head, like, there was an aviary, right? Why why didn't that show up yeah. in the movie and stuff like that? And, and you, sometimes you forget that Ed Regis was a character, like, <laughs> just because you get too yeah. familiar with the, 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 the film. And he was terrific. There's all kinds of fun things to do it. I, I remember hearing you make a comment on the Terrible Lizards podcast that Crichton wasn't exactly detailed, in how he describes the dinosaurs, there's a lot of room for your imagination to fill in the gaps. And yeah, so uh, that, that was an that, interesting that, part. That, sorry, that, that, that's what struck me when I reread it because I was looking, you know, mm -hmm. I was writing this piece about what Crichton really said. Mm -hmm. And once you read it very carefully, 
he says very, very little <laughs> indeed. And even what he says, some of it isn't very good, even for the time and with that modern interpretation of yeah. the kind of coming dinosaur renaissance, or at least that, that had come in, in research circles that was making its way into the public imagination. Yeah, um, and, and quite boring, actually. Uh, several different things are just described as having tiger stripes or leopard mm -hmm. spots. Mm -hmm. So... But, he, but you look at things like the, yeah, the Dilophosaurus, I think he says something like, you know, it stood 10 feet tall with bright crests on its head and leopard spots. And yeah, you're like, it. was it green? Was it purple? Did it stand really upright? Did it look solid? Did it look thin? Did it look fast? Did it look agitated? Like nothing. Nothing at all. Just it's this tall with spots, mm -hmm. and it doesn't even say it's a theropod. Not that he would talk about technical terms. It even say like in it's standing on its back legs with its arms out with claws on them and sharp teeth. Like nothing. Yeah. Nothing at all. And this is typical for all of his descriptions. Yeah. T. Rex and Velociraptor get a little more because Velociraptor's the start, and everyone yes. knows what T. Rex is. But yeah, Stegosaurus is just like the big animal with plates. Mm -hmm. Red, pink. With a, with a stupid yeah. gaze, because that's what Stegosaurus is famous for, having yeah, a small head, yeah. and so therefore it had a stupid brain. But, ju but just nothing. Yeah. To, you, and, you, and I think people give him this, and I'm not blaming, I'm not trying to have a go at him for this, but I think people are, oh yeah, he revolutionized how people yeah. saw dinosaurs. He doesn't even tell you how big or what color it is, <laughs> yeah. or what exit's got. This is not a man who's got detailed into dinosaurs. Because, of course, reading it again, mm -hmm. he's not interested in dinosaurs in any way, shape, or form. What he's interested in is man's hubris and science, which is why it's basically the plot of Westworld mm -hmm. again, and the plot of Andromeda, Andromeda Strain again, yes. which is something getting out because we screwed up. Um, and so, yeah, which is why dinosaurs are barely in the book. Yeah, and he doesn't actually say anything about them at all. And I've discovered, uh, <laughs> yeah, as I go through it, I'm, yeah. I'm finding that it seems to me his observation, the revolutionary perspective that he had, is actually like an old, fifteen-year-old problem. Was that he, uh, he was playing off the idea that dinosaurs were the the uh, the sprawl-legged, cold-blooded concept that was, I guess, popular through the 60s, 70s, 80s. And then he wanted yeah. to be the, on the vanguard of dinosaur science, which I think was already 10 or 15 years old by then, that they are upright, agile, socially interact, motherly yeah. uh, species. And so I, you're right. His descriptions were the dinosaurs almost looked the same as they might have 10 years prior. He just made them act a little different. And I think that that was really where his influence might have been uh, most greatly portrayed. But then again, yeah, not exactly... Yeah, I mean, he has he has the T Rex being pretty quick and agile, and mm -hmm. obviously has the Velociraptors being very fast and mm -hmm. and smart. Yeah. But again, he could have done more with the sauropods. He could have done more with Triceratops or Stegosaurus, and the Ankylosaurs show up, I think, at some point. Um, and yeah, he kind of doesn't really. They're just there as some some background mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. padding. So yeah, he he's he's using them as protagonists, and he's using them as a kind of novel antagonist in the sense that yeah they're, they're different to how mm -hmm. most people have perce perceived them and you know there's a long you know Ray Bradbury and all the others there's a long tradition of you know dinosaurs as kind of the threat but obviously it's usually it's time travel and we've gone back in time yeah or, or even you know um Conan Doyle's Lost World it's it's man invading their territory and so this is very mm -hmm. different I say very different of course Carnosaur had been published five years earlier which is essentially the same plot um 
but you know it's very different in in that concept that it's like it we did it and now it's still biting us on the ass yeah there's again there's, there's just not very much detail almost mm-hmm. anywhere and for a book as thick and long as it is yeah a couple of words about what color the stegosaurus was really shouldn't be too much to ask in a book which is allegedly about dinosaurs so there's one of the, one of the observations i i have come to accept is that the book isn't about a hero it is isn't about our heroes uh, going on their hero's journey and and overcoming yeah. their their uh weaknesses or standing in the face of their fears or something like that it's really just about the park and yeah. the villains are the people who enabled the park to survive. You get lengthy backstories on uh, Arnold's working on nuclear submarines. You get Hammond's yeah. backstory and how he did the fundraising of the Capitol. You get Gennaro's history with, um, with, with the Hammond Foundation and raising funds. You get Wu's recruitment. You get a lot of the backstory. And all of those people, Grant, apparently he's a widower, but... I mean, they don't tell you anything about it. He broke his leg yeah. while he was out in the field and had to walk back for two days through the barren badlands by himself. That is just a passing mention. His backstory doesn't exist. Yeah. Ellie Sattler, we'll get to in a little bit. Tell me two things about Ellie Sattler. She's a paleobotanist and... Yeah, running out pretty. after that. That's about it. Yeah. Uh, the heroes, the heroes, the people you... Like, I guess Timmy and Lax get a bit of a back story, but... It is really Not about much. the park, yeah. yeah. And and Ian Malcolm doesn't get much either, despite. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But he gets all the good lines having... for sure. <laughs> well, right, but yeah, but it, you know, in in t- in terms of you know, if, if it was a play, who gets the most lines? Yeah, he yeah. has all the monologues, <laughs> so he, you know, he gets to fill he gets to fill half chapters with rambling. Yeah. I think so... his middle name was Hamlet. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> so yeah, you're, yeah, you're right. They they, they get nothing because mm-hmm. it's it's not about them. So here's an interesting perspective on Grant, and we're kind of at a part where I'm, where I'm doing the podcast where we're entering into the part where Grant is going to begin to tell people that he and technology do not jive. Yeah. And perhaps you'll have an insight on this. So Grant sucks at computers. In the novel, he's describing mm. them as you know, completely alien concepts. He cannot connect with them. He can't use them. He doesn't understand them at all. Yet, it is with the assistance of computers that modern discoveries and analyses of, of what's going on in paleontology are becoming far more po- uh, you know possible you know grant is d- described as being on the leading edge of his field uh, in terms of scientific discovery and theories making the best deductions if he could never do computers how long was he going to be a paleontologist after 1990 yeah well i mean it, it kind of depends so I, I i heard tell from a colleague recently that you know, this is this is going back probably 15 years or mm-hmm. 20 years. So actually, around for that era, or a little further back, um, when he when he was a journalist and had interviewed some, you know, very senior academic, possibly even Nobel Prize winner, but that kind of level, and had interviewed him. And it was only after he finished the interview and gone back home to write up, he'd realised that the guy didn't have a computer in his office. And this is the early 2000s mm-hmm. when, like, every everyone if you were an academic had a computer in his office and apparently like made some calls and asked around it yeah no he he didn't have one his if he had an email address and if you emailed it it went to his secretary and she printed it out and she handed it to him wow and he'd dictate an answer and she'd go away and she'd type that email response and you can get away with that as a nobel prize winner in the early 2000s mm-hmm. but you were one of a handful of people who could get away with it 
I think people, again, if you, if you don't know how science works in the modern world, you know, you have these very senior people who run labs and the most senior ones actually don't do very much science in the sense of sitting down and doing the stuff because mm. that's what their grad students are doing. I have this idea and I think we can do this like this and like this and like this and it'll be months and months and months of work. Off you go, little grad <laughs> student or, or, or postdoc or junior lab academic member of, or whoever it is. Mm -hmm. And then we'll talk about it and we'll write the paper and you might see the drafts and make some comments and, and all the rest. You could actually do a hell of a lot without a computer yeah. in that regard. So if Grant's got a giant team behind him in a, mm -hmm. even in a modern university, he could do a surprising amount even now without it. But of course, emails and grant applications and journal submissions and stuff like this is so fundamental that yep. yeah sooner or later that's going to fall apart but again i think it's just playing back to the idea that he's a true outdoorsman separate in time and yada 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 yeah. you know the truth of the matter is even in like you know the mid 90s that would make you a horrible anachronist <laughs> and in real real trouble then yeah yeah it's 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 a nice idea mm. <laughs> And so for people who, who would be unaware, you wrote the book on the future of paleontology and it's literally called The Future of Dinosaurs, What We Don't Know, What We Can, and What We Will Never Know. How is new technology and the future of technology and computer assistance going to reveal the new observations in, in paleontology? Yeah, so that, that, that's kind of the final chapter of the book, short the kind of summary conclusions bit. Um, I wanted to put something in about tech, and I, uh, you know, go back to any comment. Uh, I, I hate doing tech forecasting because it's like sure. this will happen in five, ten, twenty, hundred, four hundred. Yeah. We'll clone dinosaurs soon. Yeah, it's coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, right, <laughs> but you know, you you can see that it's coming. You know, just the way we do stuff. So, like photogrammetry, if you've come across that. So this is this thing where you can take hundreds of photos of something. And the computer basically bolts them all together and overlaps them and then builds you a 3D model. Mm -hmm. um, so a friend of mine, Pete Falkingham, um, is a researcher at Liverpool John Moores University in the UK. Pete was working on this at like the cutting edge 10, 12 years ago. And like Pete and a handful of other people could do it, at least within Paleo, where it, where it was taking off. And it was grinds and grinds. And you'd run it for hours and hours for a few dozen photos and get you a very decent model, but then it like jerks and you try and rotate it because it's just so much processing power and bloody, bloody, blah. My PhD student three or four years ago, so like less than 10 years from that, we found you can do it now off video. So you can now just get your iPhone wow. out, turn a video on, just walk around this thing. It then stick it into the right program. It takes every frame of that video as a separate still and then chunks them together in minutes on your phone. You know, here you are, complete 3D model in incredible resolution, and you can do anything you want with it. Wow. And that's happened in, and no one's even working on that. That's just like a byproduct of the fact <laughs> that phones have incredible cameras of processing powers, rather than someone sat down and made this brand new dedicated photogrammetry program for paleontologists. Um, and so, yeah, I'm sure, it, you know, and now we're looking at, the kind of, you know, machine learning stuff, you know, again, you know, John Hutchinson, for example, at the Royal Vet College in London, spent years doing and still doing stuff with his team on, you know, mechanics. And one of the things you do is you can look at bones and you can look at the, 
little scars and dents and bulges on them and work out where certain muscles go. Know what you know about crocodile and bird anatomy and work out both ends of the muscle. From the size of those scars, you can get an idea of how big the muscle is and what orientation it's pulling in. And right, it's, it's surely it's a matter of time until we can teach computers that. And then I don't just walk around the skeleton and take my little video. The computer goes, oh, that's that muscle. And that muscle goes from here to here. And that muscle goes from there to there. And then it sticks all the muscles on your model. And now it knows how big and where all the muscles are. And then it will start calculating how fast it can walk and how quickly it can accelerate and how it can turn and how much it can flex each of its joints in which or it. And it will just do all of it, which currently takes us hundreds, if not thousands yeah. of hours to do badly. <laughs> I, you know, again, hate to make predictions, but the rate of acceleration, I'm sure in 10, 15 years, 20 at the outside, that mm -hmm. will literally be, you can walk into a museum and wave your phone around and have the complete walking, and, and not just to make it look pretty, but like to actually tell you how this animal functioned, just done automatically, almost probably in your hand. And compared to right now or even 10 years ago when I looked at doing some of this stuff with John and it's like one line at a time drawing it on the computer oh, and wow. then drawing another line to calculate the area and then by hand trying to work out how big it was and then measuring the angle and it's just like pages and pages and pages of calculations to work out maybe how one leg moved that's amazing um, that, that's that's going to happen it just will it's a great thing because either no one will remember this when I'm completely wrong or when yeah. I'm proved right, I can point to this obscure podcast and go, ha Yes. If I can ever find where I record. So um, <laughs> you've had a chance to name a Tyrannosaur. Is it the Zhu Cheng Tyrannus? Zhu Cheng. So yeah, so it's it's Chinese pronunciation of English characters. So Z-H-U is kind of Zhu or Zhu. So Zhu Cheng Tyrannus, which literally translates as the very tedious Tyrannosaur from Ju Chang. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I did want to call it that. The, uh, so this is when I was working in, in Beijing with my um, postdoc supervisor, Xu Xing, who is an absolute legend in the mm -hmm, field mm -hmm. of paleontology in general and theropods in particular. And I think in the three years I worked in Xu's lab, the only time I actually annoyed him is when I complained about this name because he was getting pressure from the original museum about it. And they, they, they insisted that it be called this. And I was like, this is such a dreadful dreadful name please let's not do it and he genuinely got angry with me and i'm like oh that's never happened before i'm okay. backing down on this one so still a terrible name though and i'm quite happy to say that it's terrible and i wish it wasn't called that. you you not only got to name a, a new tyrannosaur uh but you've also written the tyrannosaur chronicles the authoritative book on tyrannosaurus what did you think of, of Crichton's portrayal of the Tyrannosaurus, even if it was kind of like a, a late 80s portrayal? Uh, did it, I mean, was it fun? Was it exciting? Actually pretty good. Actually pretty good. And, and yeah, re reading that again, I mean, the, the only thing that's probably a bit suspect is it's got like the really long prehensile tongue in the scene under the waterfall. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that, that wasn't true then and isn't true now. But it, I, to be fair, I don't think anyone ever really said anything about, you know, tongue anchoring and mechanics mm -hmm. and stuff um but otherwise i really like it they're they're relatively big as in they're not kind of super svelte which was often a kind of common thing back then mm -hmm. so late 80s you had i mean wonderful canadian artist ellie kish mm -hmm. who did a lot of influential dinosaur paintings and hers were basically oh. completely emaciated yes 
and the calendar is with that, yeah. driven at least partly by scientific advice rather than her interpretation per oh, se, yeah. but they've kind of come synonymous with this overly skeletal animals. Mm -hmm. um, but that was somewhat in vogue, and he hasn't gone down that route. They're perfectly kind of solid functioning animals. It does some fairly smart things. It, it does very natural things. It sleeps. Mm -hmm. um, it, it can be annoyed when you wake it. It swims pretty well, which is not a big surprise. But again, this kind of thing nobody would ever talk about normally. Yeah, it's, uh, it's in, you know, inquisitive even. You know, the juvenile one that kills Ed Regis, it pounces on him and then doesn't know what to do. This is what <laughs> carnivores do uh, when they encounter new prey. All of that is, you know, really rather nice and makes them to be real living animals. And, and that's one thing that Crichton will give him credit for is he does treat them more as a agents only because they are animals mm -hmm. rather than because they are monsters. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really, really quite nice and something that obviously you don't see in a lot of yeah. books and even films. So I have, I have a theory on what I think Crichton's most likely interpretation of what the Tyrannosaur was, if you'll allow me. Do you know Henry Fairfield Osborne's skeletal adaptations of Ornitholestes through Theomimus Tyrannosaurus? Did you read that? I'm one? aware it exists. I mean, okay. I've, I've, I probably skimmed it, but what, I mean, when was that published? 30s? 1917. <laughs> yeah, quite. But, yeah. So, so it's yeah. called. Uh, I, ha I haven't dug through it of late. <laughs> no. In any case, in that paper, I think Crichton got his hands on that and then based Tyrannosaurus on that paper. Our first dis depiction of Tyrannosaurus in the novel is by Timmy, who says yeah. that Tyrannosaurus is, quote, the mightiest predator the Earth had ever known which harkens back to Osborne's introductory description. And tell me if this sounds like something from the 1917. Quote, Tyrannosaurus is the most superb carnivorous mechanism among the terrestrial vertebrata. Which is That's like right academic prose of the, saying the exact same thing. Mightiest predator the earth has ever known. Mm -hmm. In Osborne's paper, the Tyrannosaurus mount is described as AMNH 5027. Yep, and that's the she's still there. She's, yep. That particular skeleton is at the American Museum of Natural History and shock of all shocks, it's also the skeleton described specifically by Timmy in the book. Yeah. He has a flashback with his dad on page 95. Yeah, so, so, I'm sorry to cut you off. So, yeah. so that, that's one of Crichton's classic made-up Crichton-y things. Is it? Because, yeah, that, that, that exchange is um, Timmy counting the tail vertebrae, yeah. saying it's got too many, and his dad goes to ask the, the museum curator or the security guard, and the curator goes, yeah, that's true, actually. Yeah. Uh -huh. We don't know how many tail vertebrae tyrannosaurs have, and have never known because we've never found a complete tail. Uh -huh. So how on earth can smart Alec Tim know that a mount has got too many bones from something that we don't know now? Yes. He just made it up because it sounded good. And that's not a criticism. It's a fictional book. But it's also kind of weird. And I think that's one of those things. Sorry, I totally derailed your comment. I'm taking over. No, oh, that's it's, exactly it's what I was going to say one next. one of those things that I was kind of talking about. Yeah. He, he just makes stuff up. And it's like... He's got a bunch of paleontologists in the credit when he, yeah. when he talks about the film and the book and in interviews. He's like, well, I spoke to all these guys. It's like if you spoke to anyone about <laughs> AMNH5027, they could have pointed out half a dozen things. You know, the furcula's missing, the gastralia are missing, the arms are in slightly the wrong place. It's mm -hmm. got some weird pathology on it. We had to replace a couple of bones because they were damaged. And the teeth are falling out the sockets. Any of these things Tim mm -hmm. could have said, yeah, 
but that would presumably have required some minimal effort of asking a question of any of these paleontologists. Entirely right. And at this one, I use the word allegedly consulted or showed the manuscript to and could have gone, can you just come up with something that's funny about your skeleton for me to put in? Or read something that wasn't trivial. 80 years old? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, so he, so he just made it up. Yeah, it's, it's just that... Again, not a criticism as such, but the contrast between yeah. the perception people have that Crichton wrote this super detailed book where he hyper-researched dinosaurs and yeah. totally transformed our knowledge. And when you actually read it, he says nothing about them at all in any detail. Yeah. And when he yeah. does, it's usually wrong or made up, which suggests that actually he really didn't do this at all. And simply having introducing velociraptors, these, these human-sized, intelligent, fast dinosaurs, mm -hmm. not to denigrate that, but that is pretty much the sum total of his contribution in this regard. That's right. And yeah, that's, that's not what I think people take from the book with regards to dinosaurs. So exactly what you were saying. In Osborne's publication on page 47 in plate 27, because pictures were called plates in the 19th century, yeah. uh, there is in fact 30... Well, plate, plates are photographs. Okay. So drawings would still be figures, but a photograph is a plate because you had photographic plates. Well, it must have been a photo of a drawing because uh, it's not... A, but that, that um, I'm sure that is entirely true. Yeah. There are 37 caudal vertebrae and the Tyrannosaurus in that manuscript. Right. So that's two fairly specific references that Crichton specifically links to Osborne's paper. Yeah. And I like to think that the posture presented, so you know that tripodal lower tail yeah, yeah, yeah. and how it's standing there, that image, that it, and it looks amazing, is I think how Crichton made his Tyrannosaurus look when he was walking around. Uh, standing fairly erect, quite tall. And if you look at the cover, the, the picture that is used in the skull for the, the logo... Is almost a spinning yeah, image is, of that map. Well, it, well the, the, the logo is 5027. Yeah. There's actually one of, one of those rare things, a TED talk that's worth watching. Mm -hmm. There's the video of the guy who did the logo design talking about how he did it. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things that's at least slightly coincidental because, of course, he was hanging around in New York. So if you're asked to draw a dinosaur in, and you're in New York, you go to the AM&H. Yeah. And if you're going to draw a dinosaur, you're going to draw T-Rex. So guess which one they've got? So yeah, yeah, yeah I, I think I think that's more serendipitous that publishing houses are based in New York rather than Crichton. Crichton certainly didn't specify that that specimen, so it's more coincidental than anything else. But again, you know, the world for Sue and even Sue has a bashed up skull. Mm -hmm. AMH five is by far the best preserved T Rex skull out there. So of course you use it for everything, mm -hmm. and that's before the fact that it's on display in the American Museum of Natural History. Yeah. Very accessible, yeah. So that 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 the the artist was named Chip Kid, I think. I think that was yeah, his name. that sounds right. In any case, there's a line where Crichton says, "So Timmy's uh, got the night vision goggles on. He sees a tyrannosaur approaching the fence. He discovers, uh oh, the fence isn't electrified because the tyrannosaur is gripping the fence. Yeah. And if uh, the the only way I can portray in my mind a tyrannosaur, which should be like a horizontal uh, animal, could be yeah. gripping this fence." without its face being in the way, would be, I would think, if it had that upright, erect posture. I think that's what Crichton yeah, was imagining when he did it. Yeah, that's the point. But that's, uh, it depends how, depends how high the fence is, of course. I suppose. But, yeah, uh, I think you're right. I bet you that, nah, that may be just, In any case, those are my arguments for it. I could be wrong, but I yeah, think... I, I mean, I, I, I can easily buy that because, as yeah, as, as I was kind of saying, he's, he's not done that depth of research. I think he read one paper, <laughs> and that was it. Yeah. I think that's all of the work he did on it. 
Um, well, and those old papers, most of them were not very long and detailed either. You, know, you can skim through it in a few pages. Yeah, most of it was on Struthiomimus. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned an interesting point that we don't know how many vertebrae were actually in the tail of a Tyrannosaurus. As well, when they receive an X-ray of, uh, sorry, a fax of the X-ray of the Procomsignathan, yeah. they go, ah, yeah. And it says uh, on page 44, Grant and Ellie are looking at the X-ray that there is sent to them. They count 45 yeah. vertebrae and conclude, yup. This is no hoax. This is a real Procomsignathus. I wonder how this has happened. How often would you diagnose uh, the validity of a species based on the number of vertebrae in a tail? You wouldn't and shouldn't. And indeed, I've published two papers on tail vertebrae in dinosaurs, pointing yeah. out that they are hilariously variable and extremely undiagnostic, and we shouldn't use them for basically anything. Um, I mean, that's the first thing. The second thing is anyone who's looking at an x-ray of a theropod and counting the tail vertebrae to check whether or not it's a dinosaur or a lizard is the most appalling anatomy um, since the 1700s when even that lot could do better than this. I mean, the idea that you could mix those things up and that the tail would be the answer. For a start, there are lizards with massively longer tails with way more vertebrae than um, mm -hmm. dinosaurs. Even uh, Lelianosaurus Australian thing is the longest tail that we know of. Oh, really? Um, but there, there, are, there are lizards with tails twice that length and mm -hmm. twice as many vertebrae. The structure of the vertebrae is infinitely more important. But of course, you know, the dinosaurian pelvis, particularly for a theropod, is completely different to reptiles. The falling proportions, the skull shape, the antorbital fenestra. Mm -hmm. God, I mean, as I say, I, you know, I am you know compared to the vast majority of my colleagues a poor anatomist it's not what i do i never learned it very well and god the idea that i couldn't tell a lizard from a dinosaur from a complete skeleton <laughs> is kind of horrifying let alone some god level paleontologist who's the greatest dinosaur researcher in the world yes um yeah no <laughs> i'm not buying that okay well i felt that way too but i i like once again i'm i'm not the expert so i don't <laughs> I get the feeling that Crichton put dinosaurs in his book, but Crichton did not know about dinosaurs. That's the impression I get. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, with this thing that I wrote, I've been trying to dig into just how much research he did, and mm -hmm. it's, it's very unclear. I mean, at various times he says, oh, I spoke to people, and, you know, Jurassic Park definitely brought him to a new audience, but mm -hmm. he wasn't unfamous you know he'd written westworld that had been a movie mm -hmm. uh, he'd done some tv he'd written a lot of tv he'd done some direction you know had multiple multiple best bestsellers behind him i'd like to think that he had the you know the power effectively you know to pick up the phone and call a few people and go hi i'm michael Crichton. i'm doing a dinosaur book can we chat for a couple of hours and yeah so you know you, you think he could have picked up the phone to pretty much anyone mm -hmm. and just got some answers and again like the the sheer paucity of details you're right you know he leaves a lot to the imagination and if that's the intent that's fine mm -hmm. but then when he has these serious scientific points yeah of them discussing the procomsignathus or the populations or the am and h tail or all these other things uh, and like you know ellie talks about these fossil plants those names are made up they're not real fossil plants you know the the disease that um the basilisk uh, the, the plants yeah, they're all made up yeah 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 and it's like dude how hard is it to go to the library yeah and pull out like the kids encyclopedia of the world of dinosaurs <laughs> and say ginkgos were still around there are fossil plants called x and then just write that name yeah. down 
like this is let's let's be blunt bordering on hack work if you yeah. can't even mm-hmm. be bothered to pull a kid's book off the shelf to I get think, a I think the toxin in the procomsignathus was made up and I think he even made up a yeah. there's a triassicus and the amasicus which he made up as well like he just there's a yeah. lot of things he just whipped like, out of pulled out of the ether to to include and it sounded yeah, I guess fancy so, yeah yeah but but then, but then you get but then you get diagrams of the web space for how the computer works. <laughs> yeah. So he's really into that. Yeah. You know, but but yeah, the, the actual dinosaurs and the and the, and the animals and plants in his, in his island. Mm-hmm. Who cares? And there's one part um, that stuck out to me on the tour where they're going over how they just hatch out the animals to see what they are. And there was one of the, the coding was um, Saluru or something like that. And he said, well, this is a presumed Salurus or Slurosaurus or something like that. Yeah. And then he described it as a herbivore. And then you've got Grant yeah. and Timmy, who are like the book's experts on dinosaurs, and they just overlook this, like, entirely. Yeah. And, and That's not a thing. Yeah. Well, and just the idea that a Slurosaur would be not known to be a yeah. carnivore would be... that's some, I just feel like he didn't understand dinosaurs when he wrote it. And it's odd to write a whole book on dinosaurs about the, the truth and, and the, the wonder of dinosaurs, and, and but not really get them. You know, that's odd. You're supposed, yeah. you're supposed to write what you know, is what they say, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. As I say, you know, you know, almost at all in that regard. Um, you know, it, it's hard to pinpoint any detail that's very accurate. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a there's a couple. Um, I remember the Avery. You talked about the Avery. So he has them hanging from the ceiling. Now I'd want to double check the dates because that obviously had been an idea for pterosaurs for a long time. So they had this bat-like feet. Um, Chris Bennett definitely wrote a paper where he kind of smashed that idea down, but I'm pretty sure it postdates Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. But still, it wasn't a common idea by the time you got to, you know, this, this is an old, old idea that pterosaurs about like. Um, but then it hits the ground and, and, and walks off, and it walks on its wings, mm-hmm. and Grant has some line like, oh, I can't remember the name, German paleontologist. Letterer. Letterer? Sorry? Letterer. L e d e r e r. Yeah, but it's like oh, such such and such was right about that idea. Yeah. So he drops in a few little things like that, but again, there, there's far, far, far more misses than hits, and so it feels like some casual thing that someone dropped his way and mm-hmm, so he mm-hmm. just put it in. But it, yeah, in terms of actual research, you know, it is not hard to find out what's wrong with AMN five three two seven if you want to throw away comment. It is not hard. To you know, uh, you know, ask a paleontologist what's the difference between a lizard and a dinosaur? Like this is this should not be tough. No, um, to put that kind of stuff in, you know, that is undergraduate level anatomy, um, and therefore again, it's kind of a bit of a surprise in that regard because yeah, it's all when you, you get into really technical stuff and go yeah, but you'd have to be a paleontologist to know that. Yeah, you would a lot of the time, but not like how do you tell a lizard from a dinosaur? You know, I teach my undergrads that. It's a class of 150 every year in thousands of universities. There's a lot of people who probably know that. You should maybe ask. Well, I wanted, like, we're almost out of time. I only have time, I think, to ask you one more question. I wanted to ask you more about Ellie Sattler's undergraduate degree, 
what with being a, a, a doctor of paleobotany that's been consulting as a specialist for five or six years to the Hammond Foundation, but only being 24 years old. I wanted to ask you more about Deinonychus and how it could have possibly existed in this book, even though it was clearly defined as Deinonychus. Anteropus, not Velociraptor. Anteropus is early as 1969, <laughs> but it doesn't make any sense. But I want to go with the aviary, because that's what we... Uh, I want to talk about pterosaurs yeah. just a little bit. The Sierra Dactylus, is that as far as you know how to pronounce it? Cerodactylus, I've, I've got them down as, though, though he just calls them Cerodactyls a lot of the yeah, time. Yeah, he doesn't quite say it but right. Yeah, they're, they're, I looked it up, it sounds yeah, like they're, they're Argentinian. They sounds like they might have been discovered in the early 80s, so they would have been kind of new when he was writing this, uh, yeah, the first draft of this book. Yeah, that's a point. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about the date aspect of, so of them. This so this might yeah, have been modern. Quite a new animal. Grant knows what they are as soon as he sees them. And uh, it kind of bucks the trend, because I looked into them, they're from Argentina, so this whole northern dig thing doesn't pan out in terms of where he got their cerodactyls, yeah. but their cerodactyls. But it, I guess, from your impression, you mentioned how they walk on their wings. That was good. They hang from the ceiling yeah. like bats. That was bad. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the other parts, they had uh, hairy bodies. They they do pick up yeah. people. I don't think they pick up people. Should they? <laughs> no, no, um, no, no. So they they, they grab like hat or her glove i can't remember which it is and and they go and get dive bombed and scratched a bit but mm -hmm. i don't think anything worse happens to them uh so yeah cerodactyls i'm pretty sure are not my branch of pterosaurs but i'm pretty sure they're ornithochirids mm -hmm. okay. so they're related to ornithochirus and hangera tropignathus and a bunch of these others so relatively big animals i mean big tropignathus are like eight meter wingspan but a lot of these Ooh. kinds of things are like three to five um Long heads with often a crest at the end of the snout, top and bottom, and then quite a lot of teeth. Um, and, and fish eaters, so mm. mostly kind of fairly ocean-going, at the bare minimum coastal animals. There are a few living land, for, you know, hunting in rivers and lakes and stuff. Um, and yeah, furry bodies, all pterosaurs we think had that. That might have been not brand new, but sordies, which is this little thing from Kazakhstan, and was the first pterosaur that we really reckon, you know, it's one of those things in hindsight became obvious we had some others. Yeah. But it was the first pterosaur we recognized with a furry body and realized that actually this was probably pretty common among pterosaurs. So that was pretty, that was, you know, mid 70s. So again, given the timeline, mm -hmm. relatively new idea, this is still kind of gaining traction. So his depiction of them is not too bad at all. I mean, he has them as powered flyers, he has them as active on the ground there was you know a lot of old ideas about them barely being able to walk and all the rest of it and i wonder how much of that he he pulled that i'm trying to think of the when did jurassic park actually the book actually come out was it 80 1990 was it 1990 okay so it does then post date bob backer's famous dinosaur heresies and in that backer says that pterosaurs are dinosaurs Oh, he says okay. they're a very odd early offshoot of dinosaurs. Now, he kind of cheated because what he actually did is he just, he didn't like push pterosaurs into dinosaurs so much as if you read oh, carefully what he wrote, he dragged the definition of dinosaurs down until it was okay. below pterosaurs, <laughs> which right. is not, you know, it's a bit of a... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? It, it's a bit of a trick of the language, mm -hmm. but he certainly, but he does specifically call pterosaurs dinosaurs, and so I don't think Crichton, Crichton doesn't do anything like that. But it would give him some more ammunition for this idea mm -hmm. that pterosaurs are hot-blooded dinosaur-like animals. So I, yeah, I wonder if that had an influence with that, which then feeds back into the hairiness. 
if you could have picked a pterosaur to put in the novel, a pterosaur of your choice, what would it have been and what would they have done? Oh, that is a tricky question. So, I mean, in the, in the book, I think it's a giant, like, dome kind of thing. Yeah, that's um, the idea. And I, actually, one thing I did really, really like about Jurassic Park 3, the film, and they have, actually have a, quite a soft spot for that, yeah. is they, you know, the Pteranodon Avery, they basically got a chunk of cliff and then just put netting over the top and down the sides, which is a much better way of <laughs> making an enclosed... So it's just infinitely cheaper and will look nice. Yeah. Why the hell wouldn't you do that? Yeah, it's it's hard to say because obviously they didn't. He wanted something a bit different. He didn't want anything too threatening. You know, they've had enough threats, and they've got the T Rex and the Velociraptors to watch out for. You don't really want something that's instantly fatal, like you know, Quetzalcoatlus. Mm -hmm. Plus the plausibility of keeping that, you know, ten meter wingspan. Where the hell did you put that? <laughs> uh, you know, you just can't make it. You know, if you struggle to make aviaries for condors with two meter wingspans. You're not going to get it for that or two or three. Um, yeah, I think he picked the right kind of thing in that you want something mid-sized mm -hmm. that could be nasty enough. It would definitely leave some bumps and bruises. And so actually, they probably had the right idea with Dimorphodon in Jurassic World, mm -hmm. though their Dimorphodon model is one of the worst depictions of any pterosaur ever. It's so utterly mangled and horrible and awful in just about every possible way. And anyone who thinks I'm exaggerating for comedic effect, no, it is absolutely dreadful and appalling and awful in almost every possible way. There is barely anything right about that model that wouldn't be fixed with a baseball bat and some severe flattening and, and reshaping. Yeah. Like the hands are wrong, the wings are wrong, the head shapes are wrong, the teeth are wrong, the eyes are wrong, the tail, legs, the feet, the claws. Like it's all awful. Um, but Dimorphodon, two, two and a half meter wingspan, big head, lots of nasty teeth. Mm -hmm. We think it's a kind of generalized small predator. It might well get quite territorial and nasty and it's have a decent bite on it. But you could probably also fight it off quite easily. We also think they're pretty good terrestrially and climbing and running around in trees. Okay. That would give it a bit more agility and jumping and flapping and coming out at you. Um, that that could work very well. In fact, it should have worked well in the last film, but of course it's just in the Avery with the Pteranodons mm. and then they just immediately get out and don't do anything. So of course, you know, completely wasted opportunity. And here we are moaning about Jurassic World. <laughs> how every good discussion of dinosaurs ends up. Well, that was a good answer, but that wasn't an answer we were looking for. The correct answer was the... The Canadian Discovery, co-authored by yourself, the Cryodracon Boreas, would have... Oh, you want to Cryodracon? Yeah, Sorry, so uh, you lost all your points. Yeah. <laughs> Galera. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, yeah, that would have been quite a good animal. But again, if, if, if we're right, the max size is right up there with Quetzalcoatlus is in it? the 10-meter wingspan range. Just make yeah, the aviary so the, the bigger. Main animal we just... <laughs> Sorry? Just make the aviary bigger. It's all right. Yeah, it's a size ball. But they they take your arms right off, eh? You're saying they'd, they'd be a little too fatal. <laughs> yeah, I think they would. I mean, we, we'd probably be too big for them. But actually, a ten-year-old kid, oh, it might well be in the range of what they might go for. I mean, I wouldn't want to find out. Well, like I said, we just we just didn't have enough time. But um, I wanted to talk, like I said, more about Ellie Sattler, more about uh, your favorite parts of the book and the characters, certainly about the Deinonychus and things like that. Is there any chance you'd ever come back and do this again? Uh, at some point, I've really got to finish my next book, and literally, um, while we were hooking up, I got the uh, email through with my contract for the book after my next book. Oh, wow, okay. Uh, in addition to the kids' books, I need to finish editing. 
So yeah, I'm fairly full for a while. But, I respect uh, that entirely. Tell people in a year. where people where can be, they look to to find out where they can get your books and things like that if they're interested um, in learning more by, about you. By far the easiest thing is uh, DaveHome.co.uk. Yeah. I just I maintain a website. You might have to click through a few bits, but there's a list of all my videos. There's a link to the podcast. There's um, not links to my books, but at least the title and company, and you can see the cover, so you can find it once you know what they're looking for and yeah. all the rest of it. And there's my papers and outreach and Twitter handle and basically everything's on there. So if you if, if by some miracle you want more of me, um, that's the place to start because it's, it's basically got everything. Well, ladies and gentlemen, David Hone, Dr. David Hone, thank you so much for coming on. I really, really, really appreciate it. It's been amazing. Thank you very much for having me. It's been fun. <laughs> A big special thank you to the terrific and world-famous Dr. David Hone for joining me. It's been an incredible privilege to produce this podcast, and I get all these wonderful guests and friends to join me on here and share little bits about themselves, and it's just fantastic to know that I really appreciate it. Thanks, everybody. Uh, you'll have to pardon some of that hammering sound during the interview. We had roofers come in to replace a few shingles after that terrific windstorm during the Victoria Day weekend over here. So that's what they were doing while I had uh, an opportunity to connect <laughs> with uh, with Dr. Hone. He being in London, England, and me being in Ontario. So our time zones, they, they kind of that was the window of opportunity we had. This week's text is Malcolm, spanning from pages 71 to 76. Synopsis, Ian Malcolm introduces himself as a braggadocious, outspoken, and opinionated mathematician who is openly defiant of Hammond's island resort, believing wholeheartedly that Hammond has a, quote, serious problem. Malcolm boards Hammond's plane and introduces himself, making an immediate impression on everyone. We have characters, and of course, we, we finally meet Ian Malcolm. A tall, thin, balding man of 35, dressed entirely in black. Black shirt, black trousers, black socks, black sneakers. He says... Black is an excellent color for heat, and because of black body radiation, the color is actually the best in heat because of efficient radiation, he says on 72. He's carrying a soft leather briefcase, which contains copies of his original consultancy paper he wrote for Hammond. In it, the math of chaos theory shows that Hammond's simple system, animals in a zoo environment, will fall victim to imperfections, which will overpower their expectations and lead to unpredictable behavior. Malcolm is totally confident that the element of control is doomed to fail, just as if they designed the park based on their predictions for the weather. Characteristically, Malcolm seems to delight in being unpredictable, saying unconventional things. Perhaps this is his fight against living in a world of frightful givens, where it's given that you will behave like this and given that you will care about that, he says on page 72. He frets that, quote, no one thinks about the givens, and so speaks about unusual or challenging things in unusual and challenging ways, perhaps to break people from being stuck in the rut of pre-recorded social norms. In any case, he delights in the eccentricity, embracing the idea that he's mad as a hatter, he says on page 72. Ian Malcolm is one of the most famous of a new generation of mathematicians. Malcolm finds his disagreements with Hammond as a sort of game, evidenced by his comment, yes, I'm afraid your old nemesis is here, he says on 71. He appears more amused by this outing to Hammond's resort than anything else. His charm is more of a deplorable excess of personality. How do you do? I do maths. They often behave like rock stars, we're told, on page 72. In his first interaction with Sattler, he immediately tells her he's sexually attracted to her before answering her question. Is it too warm to wear black? Well, the answer is you're extremely attractive, and I could look at your legs all day. <laughs> Malcolm is famously of the new generation of mathematicians who are characteristically scholars who have broken from the cloister tradition of mathematics in several important ways. 
One, they use computers constantly frowned on by traditional mathematicians. Two, they work with nonlinear equations in the emerging field of chaos theory. Three, they care that their mathematics describes something in real life that actually exists in the real world. And four, they dress and speak with a deplorable excess of personality. But most importantly, Malcolm has calculated and wholeheartedly believes in his conclusions that there is a serious problem at Hammond's Island Resort, and the eventual outcome is to shut the thing down. Malcolm is indifferent to Hammond's outbursts in defiance of his opinion, and provides everyone a copy of his original consultancy paper he wrote for InGen to show his work. Malcolm says, to conclude the chapter, there is a problem with that island, it is an accident waiting to happen, he says on 76. We also have John Hammond. Hammond and Malcolm don't see eye to eye, evidenced by Hammond welcoming Malcolm aboard his flight with forced graciousness, we are told on 71. Hammond suggests that Malcolm is a man of strong opinions on 72, and when he begins to start controlling the conversation, Hammond shrugs and defers to Gennaro, blaming him for inviting Malcolm on the trip at all. He argues against Malcolm's belief that the island resort has a serious problem. Upon Malcolm upsetting Hammond, he leaves them because he has some phone calls to make, and I think there's an argument to be made that it's at this specific moment that he calls to invite Lex and Tim to the island. I'll, I'll argue my point later. It's a, it's well, it's it's worth listening to. <laughs> Alan Grant is Grant our preview character in this chapter. I think he is. We get his perspective on Malcolm, who appears like a rock star, is famously of the new mathematicians who are characteristically well defined. Grant further reveals that yes, he knows who Malcolm is and appreciates why he has quote his share of detractors, that his style is too abrasive, his applications of chaos theory are too glib, and he thumbs through Malcolm's report. Ellie Sattler is here. The first thing she asks Malcolm is if he's uncomfortable wearing all black in the Texas humidity. And she asks if wearing only black is boring. Sattler is continuously unflappable. No matter what happens, she shrugs it off like it's no biggie. That's just the way things are. She rolls with the punches. We've seen earlier that jumping through hoops for cash goes with a job. Just before boarding Hammond's jet in episode 13, Chateau, when Gennaro was shocked to see that she's a woman, she's like, yeah, these things happen, and laughs it off. She's commonly portrayed as just rolling with the punches and being a cool customer, but when Malcolm strolls up and is very direct with her, he, she stares, open-mouthed. Malcolm has really caught her off guard, and she's commonly unflappable. Donald Gennaro... Uh, Gennaro questions Malcolm on his report, and knowing that the mathematics are far beyond his comprehension, asks for Malcolm's opinion in layman's terms. Malcolm obliges him. He wants to know why Malcolm believes Hammond's Island is doomed to fail, and Gennaro questions Malcolm trying to understand chaos theory, but dang it, it's complicated. But Gennaro sticks with it, requesting simplification. Chaos theory is in here too. Let's start with the background. Science is good at describing linear equations and regular movement of objects. Mathematicians can solve those equations easily and have been doing it for centuries, says Malcolm. Turbulent events like water coming from a faucet or air moving over an airplane wing and weather systems are described by nonlinear equations and physics handle them badly. They're hard to solve and usually impossible to solve, says Malcolm. Chaos theory grew out of attempts to use a computer to model the weather in the 1960s. It was found to be unpredictable because the behavior of the system is sensitively dependent on initial conditions. Nonlinear dynamics are at play as the system is sensitive to initial conditions and tiny differences become amplified. This is summarized in the butterfly effect where in theory, a butterfly flaps its wings in Peking and it affects the weather in New York. And let it be known, we call Peking Beijing today. Maybe everybody already knows this and I'm just the last guy to know about it. Uh, Chinese city nomenclature. Historically, Peking appears to be a Portuguese pronunciation from the 16th century that carried into English pronunciation before the New York Times adopted the spelling and pronunciation of the now common Beijing in 1986, after which 
major media outlets followed suit, including the BBC in 1990. Uh, so Malcolm and Crichton, I guess, are still using an old pronunciation, an outdated pronunciation, in uh, this little summary here. Peking and Beijing. Uh, but as unpredictable as chaos theory is, that doesn't mean that it's all just random and unpredictable, says Malcolm on 75. There's an underlying order to any sort of complex system where there is confusion and unpredictability. And so chaos theory is a very broad theory used to study the stock market, riots, and brainwaves during epileptic fits, says Malcolm. That underlying order is essentially characterized by the movement of the system within phase space we say out loud with a laugh? Like, what does that even mean? Malcolm generalizes that the underlying order of a nonlinear system can be characterized by the movement of the system within phase space. And yeah, that's a mouthful. So Malcolm analogizes. A pool ball struck on a billiards table will carom and strike other balls on the table, which can be mathematically predicted. The force the cue ball is struck with, the placement of the balls and the angles uh, the balls strike are all known measures, so the calculation can be made in theory. In theory, you could predict the behavior of the ball far into the future as it keeps bouncing from side to side, says Malcolm. However, quote, it turns out you can't predict more than a few seconds into the future because small effects, imperfections in the surface of the ball, tiny indentations in the wood of the table start to make a difference. He says this on 75. And remember, this is similar to the scene in, in, the, in the movie where he's dripping water down Ellie's hand. He says a lot of these same things. It doesn't take long before they overpower your careful calculations, meaning the simple system is a, of a pool ball on a billiards table has unpredictable behavior. Hammonds Park is the pool table. It's a simple system, but imperfections will overpower their calculations, leading to unpredictable behavior. I like it also noted that Crichton blows right through what strange attractors are. He doesn't touch those with a 10-foot pole. I looked into them, and I don't know what they are, and I couldn't explain them either. But they're kind of a big deal when it comes to describing chaos theory. But how does the book deal with it? <laughs> Malcolm asks, do you understand strange attractors? Gennaro says, no. That's page 73, and that's the end of that discussion, and probably for the best. Localities, we have the Dallas airport where Hammond's private jet picks up Ian Malcolm, and the air there is humid. We have Hammond's jet. It has padded chairs, and is staffed by a stewardess, and I guess also a pilot. Malcolm pauses and takes a moment to stare at the ceiling before explaining chaos theory. Remember, Grant found the interior much smaller than he expected, and the sense of space inside the jet isn't very well related, but perhaps that's unimportant. <laughs> Who cares, right? Allusions and references, we have another mention of Alice's adventures in Wonderland. When Malcolm, quote, cheerfully introduces himself as, quote, mad as a hatter, he's evoking the eccentric mad hatter from Lewis Carroll's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. We've earlier discussed that the compi remains are this novel's MacGuffin, but also in episode five with my guest Jordan Mallon, we spoke briefly on the compies being also like the white rabbit from the story too, where we follow the compi remains like Alice follows the white rabbit into a mysterious land where we find mysterious adventures. There are at least two more references where we get a rebirth motif as our character emerges from narrow tunnels and into new worlds, but both those moments could be also read as if they were Alice going through the rabbit hole. In any case, the first tunnel comes very soon in the, in the chapter Jurassic Park on page 83, so we're almost there. The very first words of the third iteration describe a green tunnel, and a second tunnel is in the final chapter named Descent, and it's portrayed on page 385. And we'll cover that when we get there. But I think this first tunnel definitely fits into the Alice's Adventures in Wonderland motif, where the second tunnel symbolizes probably a rebirth motif, as if they're entering into a new paradigm. But again, we'll cover that when we get there. So there we are, a little bit more Alice in Wonderland. Shaken, not stirred. Malcolm alludes to a famous line from every James Bond film, ordering a Diet Coke, shaken, not stirred. 
from the flight attendant on page 72. James Bond is a notorious womanizer, and perhaps Malcolm is pretending to be as equally attractive as Agent 007, aiming to employ a similar coquettishness? I don't know. Black body radiation. I looked into this, and it's another situation where the math gets a bit sticky. I'm not entirely sure what Ian Malcolm is talking about, nor can I corroborate whether wearing black is a good idea in hot weather because of black body radiation either. As far as I know, the color black absorbs heat, and therefore black clothing would actually capture heat and keep it against your body. If it's sunny, meaning you would probably be less comfortable from wearing it. But that's just schoolyard chemistry, right? I mean, I don't know. Black absorbs heat, white reflects it. That's what we were always told. I may require a physicist or a mathematician to join us and answer some of these sticky questions. But after hearing from Dr. Holm in this episode, it is not above Crichton to just throw big words and bad science at the reader, believing that you'll gloss right over it because nobody knows any better. The butterfly effect. Now, the butterfly effect is a term that's more accessible, which suggests that actions, even tiny ones, have consequences or reactions. It was Newton's third law that says for each action there must be an equal and opposite reaction. This kind of plays with that theory, except that the reactions can lead to unforeseen consequences, and those consequences can be big or small. Therefore, something as small as a butterfly flapping its wings can lead to a devastating weather change across the world in theory. I remember a dinosaur-related episode of a show that played on this concept. Hunters were taken back in time to hunt Tyrannosaurus with two rules, stay on the path and only kill things that don't have a future. Well, a guy chases a Tyrannosaur, goes off the path, and accidentally steps on a butterfly, killing it. Well, sure enough, that changes everything, and when they return to their present time, the world is now run by a dictator or something like that. I looked further into it, and it was actually a Ray Bradbury story called Sound of Thunder. And again, Dr. Hone mentioned that uh, mentioned Ray Bradbury in our interview too. I think what I watched was Ray, Ray Bradbury Theater from 1989. Whether I saw that episode in 1989 or as a rerun, I don't know, but I do remember it vividly, just not all the specifics. Stylistic techniques. Creighton employs italics, of course, some more. Malcolm emphasizes the things he finds tedious and trivial by emphasizing them in his dialogue, perhaps showing contempt for concepts he believes are beneath him, like I don't want to waste like time thinking about clothing. I don't want to think about what I will wear in the morning. That's on page 72. We live in a world of frightful givens. It is given that you will behave like this. Given that you will care about that. Page 72 as well. So there we are. He's adding emphasis on these things he doesn't like. M-dash. Uh, they're hard to solve. M-dash. In fact, they're usually impossible to solve. And again, this is employed to add a perfunctory summary to an, and add extra emphasis at the end of a sentence. Ellipses. You know this because of ellipses on page 75. This represents empty space, a lingering pause where something has been omitted. And in this case, it's an invitation to Malcolm to fill that space with an answer, which Malcolm loves to do. We have literary techniques like the simile. They often behaved like rock stars on page 72. And I think we get kind of that rock star overconfidence serious stage present feeling from from Malcolm. So that's a that's a strong simile. It worked out well. Chaos theory is like a pool ball struck on a pool table. That's maybe more of an analogy that was going on, but I think Crichton does a good job demonstrating how complications of chaos theory are, are portrayed well in, in this analogy with the pool balls. That island is an accident waiting to happen. That's a direct comparison. It's an accident waiting to happen. Um, and we can relate to that very easily as well. Metaphor or colloquialisms, Malcolm says the mathematics are a bit sticky. And I've been saying that too, just to, to play with the same, same phrase. Malcolm's suggesting that the math formulas are sticky in a way that might keep you from enjoying it, like 
might be uncomfortable, keep you from moving forward. It's a common expression, though not necessarily an effective metaphor, as it doesn't clearly transfer a quality from one thing to another, but more of transfers an aura of common experience, that of something being sticky to another thing. And the, he's referring to the equations in his original paper. Are they sticky like a tar pit? Or like a strawberry jam on toast? Are they sticky like a post-it note? Or sticky like chewing gum on your seat? I guess this is more of a colloquialism rather than an actual metaphor, but I'm not exactly sure I like it or I think that it's effective. And we get a cliffhanger or maybe a bad omen. <laughs> but uh, the, the final sentence in the chapter, there is a problem with that island. It is an accident waiting to happen, says Malcolm. And that's, uh, that's a great way to, to leave off a chapter. Further discussion, let's talk a little bit about feminism. Sattler and Malcolm talk about what he's wearing. And Malcolm specifically addresses that Sattler is, quote, extremely pretty, and that he could, quote, look at her legs all day, on page 72. Her contributions to the chapter are talking about Malcolm's outfit and whether or not it's boring. And that's not quite the height of feminism, you know, Mr. Crichton. However, uh, Malcolm does call her Dr. Sattler, which is another example of someone who doesn't know her at all and refers to her as a doctor. Although, again, I argue at only 24 years old, she's not spent enough time in academia to have earned the credentials, but not yet. My wife is pretty sure that Crichton just overlooked her age and that she's, for all intents and purposes, should be considered a doctor. And my wife is probably right, but I don't like it. Not my wife being right, just this age gap on Sattler doesn't work for me. But in terms of overlooking Ellie's character, the woman doesn't even get a full common name, just the nickname Ellie. No backstory, no history, just a nickname, a pair of hot legs, and an opportunity to opine on how botany is misunderstood. And there's Ellie Sattler. That's all there is to it. I think Crichton just didn't spend a lot of time writing that one. Uh, timeline. The scene, this scene here occurs shortly before midnight, Thursday, August 29th, 1989, according to my timeline. I had to do quite a bit of math and calculations, but I'm pretty sure that's accurate. Dodson's man. We're told in the past chapter that Dodson's mysterious inside man is, quote, obnoxious and arrogant on 69. And Malcolm boards Hammond's jet and behaves with a, quote, deplorable excess of personality blatantly flirting with Sattler. Should we have perhaps believed that Malcolm was Dodson's inside man? It's not declared very clearly, but maybe we were. Calling all kids. In this chapter, Malcolm upsets Hammond, who then leaves the group for the adjoining cabin because he has, quote, some phone calls to make. And I think there's an argument to be made that it's at this specific moment that he calls to invite Lex and Tim to the island. Let's pay closer attention to see if that bears fruit or not. Hammond realizes that Malcolm is successfully convincing Gennaro that the island is unsafe, and so at this moment decides to play a trump card to try and win over their hearts and minds by inviting his grandkids. Hammond admits, quote, he had only brought the grandkids to the island because he thought it would stop Gennaro from destroying the resort, on page 383. It's reasonable to believe that Hammond hoped the consultants would be inspired to see the park through the wide-eyed joy of a child if the grandkids were along with them on the tour. But my question at this time is... Do you think that Hammond hatches this plan now, in this chapter, just after Malcolm upsets him, and the calls he has to go make are to arrange for the kids to join them? Well, the timeline is possible. If Hammond makes this call shortly after midnight, which is when Malcolm boards the jet, and they fly to San Jose, which is about four and a half hours, they have a layover of some undisclosed amount of time in San Jose, and then they take a 40-minute helicopter flight to Isla Nublar that equates to... Five hours plus a layover, let's say six hours at least, and then after they arrive at the island, they visit their suites for a while and have a bit of a pre-tour meeting with Gennaro on the second floor of the visitor center, presumably over lunch. So that takes us, let's say, another two hours and possibly more for a total of eight hours. So from midnight Friday morning 
to San Jose, then Isla Nublar, then the suites in the visitor center. We're looking at around eight hours at least, and more realistically, probably something like 10 to 12 hours, considering the layover at the airport was probably a couple of hours itself. And if they're having lunch with their meeting with Gennaro, and I think that's very likely, then we're talking 12 hours from the time of the phone call. Now, I understand that a flight from New York to San Jose, Costa Rica, is about five and a half hours with a 40-minute helicopter ride to Isla Nublar. That means the kids could have taken a 6 a.m. flight gained an hour passing from the eastern time zone into central time zone, arriving in Costa Rica at 10.30 a.m., a brief layover, a 40-minute chopper ride, and then started infuriating Gennaro with their presence in a very reasonable journey sometime after the consultant's meeting after the noon hour. So that timeline is possible. Can you drag two unpacked preteens out of bed without prior notice, get them to JFK International by 6 a.m., and send them unescorted from a Costa Rican airport to a remote island in that time too? (laughs) I don't know. Let's not get too weighed down by the details here. But it's possible, and that's good enough for me. And that's it. That's all the things we wanted to discuss in this episode today. Thank you. Thank you to my special guest, Dr. David Hone, for joining me. It's been a big goal to get him on, and and I'm so pleased that he was able to join us. I want to sign off also thanking you for joining me. You're just as important as all my guests. If you want to read along in the book, add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show, or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me. I'm at ryansrogers at gmail.com. If you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line and we can try and set something up. We can rehash, tear down, gush over, and chit-chat about any part of the book, or also not the book, all you'd like. Jurassic Podcast is part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens funny pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lap graphic novelettes, the infantry, and the worst of them all, the King Street Capers. And you can find links to all that baggage in the show notes or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.ca. Or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers. Or me, I'm on Twitter at RogersRyan22. Thank you dearly for tuning into the Jurassic Podcast, the Jurassic Park podcast where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park. And also not that too. Until next time.